This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. If I saw you in Toronto this week at the Collision Conference, hello again. It's nice to see you. It's nice to be out and about, seeing real people in real life. This week, we've got an interview with Alex Sherman from CNBC. Did this one from Alex's basement, but it was still nice to see Alex. I'll, I'll take seeing Alex wherever I can. We talked about Vice and Disney and Warner Media and Netflix, of course. I always talk about Netflix because Netflix is always in the news. It is the most important story in media, says Alex, and I agree. So here's me and Alex Sherman. I'm here with Alex Sherman from CNBC. Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Peter. Always happy to be here. Delighted to have you on. You live and breathe media stories, business of media, focusing on sort of the, the bigger companies in the universe. So it's perfect for this show. There's been a lot going on um, the last weeks, months uh, in that world and wanted to touch on a few different news stories with you. I, I think the biggest one is even though we have spent a lot of time talking about it, you're covering it a lot. I think it's still undercovered, which is what the fuck happened with Netflix and what's going to happen in the future. And I won't rehash everything, but to sum up, Netflix says it's going to lose 2 million subscribers this quarter. This is a company that has always grown and grown and grown. What does Netflix losing 2 million subscribers mean about Netflix? And what does it say about the rest of the streaming industry? It is the biggest story in the greater media entertainment landscape. There's no doubt about that. It has fundamentally changed the narrative for every major company in this space over the past two to three years. I mean, in a nutshell, the guiding light for every significant legacy media company for the past three or four years has been how do we turn ourselves into Netflix as quickly as possible so that we can trade like Netflix. Netflix has traded at what has been historically a tech multiple, not a legacy media multiple. So, you know, 30, 40, 50 times earnings, whereas a typical legacy media company on Wall Street trades at 5, 10, maybe 15, something like that. So the idea is, okay, if we make a streaming product, Wall Street will see us like they've seen Netflix, even though streaming perhaps is not as good of a business in the short term, certainly not as good of a business, maybe even in the long term as the golden goose, the legacy cable bundle. They spent years complaining that Netflix was being treated differently than them, that if Wall Street would let them lose a bunch of money and grow subs and not have to worry about making a real profit, that they could do the same thing. And eventually that is what they tried to do. And what ended up happening here is instead of the legacy media industry getting this awesome Netflix multiple and having all their shares rise and all their investors stand up and cheer, they brought down Netflix. In essence, the competitiveness and Netflix sort of hitting a ceiling on maybe total addressable market growth that may or may not be true. We'll find out in the future, future years. Investors have sort of turned their back on Netflix. 
And so Netflix, which was a you know, $300 or $400 billion company, uh, is now a $75 billion company, roughly speaking, depending on the day. Now, the legacy media companies have uh, very publicly, you've talked about it on this show, uh, uh, had this sort of moment of schadenfreude where they're like, see, we told you this Netflix thing never really made any sense. And they spent all this money and they would spend more and more money every year and their stock would go up and they would make all these shitty shows and nobody cared. And, and look what's happened. But the problem with that general schadenfreude narrative is that all of the media companies change themselves into the same thing as Netflix. So their stocks, too, have not done well. Disney, which has traded largely on uh, Disney Plus subscribers, they announced a, sort of a blowout, really strong quarter last quarter, and their shares dropped 5%. And Disney's shares are the worst performing stock on the Dow this year, and they didn't do well last year. So there's this sort of uh, look-in-the-mirror moment going on right now about what does this mean for us? We've all we're we're, we're too far in on streaming, right? The, the ship has sailed, I think, on that one. I certainly wouldn't expect some sort of pullback where all of a sudden all these legacy media companies were like, actually, we're going to protect the cable bundle now and we're going to stop putting all of our best stuff on streaming. I don't think that's going to happen. So the big question is, if it's all systems go on streaming forward, uh, how do they convince Wall Street to revalue streaming again as a business that they're at least valuing higher than they are today. Let's leave out the Wall Street part for just a second. You can't really leave it out, right? But my, the, I'm still stuck on the question of what does it mean that Netflix lost 2 million subscribers? Does it mean, that, and we don't know, but do you think that means that 2 million people went to Peacock and Disney Plus and name your streaming subscription service and that all this competition that Netflix said it had no problem with is actually pulling people away or does it mean actually um, people are just done paying for streaming service they're not going to add more streaming services and that all the other streaming services are going to hit have the same problem Netflix has with with decreased demand Depending on how it shakes out, that 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 means very different things. Either the entire market for streaming is is not nearly as big as we thought, or it's just a dogfight and and it's it's a zero sum game. So that obviously, to your point, we don't know. And by the way, their estimate is that they lost two million subscribers this quarter. We don't even know that. I mean, that that number could be worse or it could be better. We'll find out when Netflix reports their second quarter earnings. They did, in fact, lose two hundred thousand subscribers, which was the first time they'd recorded a loss in more than ten years on a quarterly basis last quarter. So, your question is basically, in a nutshell, is this a Netflix problem or is this like a streaming problem? What I think is going to be interesting with that is. Layering so first of all, I don't know. Nobody knows the answer to that question. But layering on top of that is we seem to be entering a theoretical recession and economic slowdown. I'm not, I'm not even sure what the right term is here, but obviously we see rampant inflation. We're seeing an advertising pullback as Netflix and Disney both get set to launch their ad-supported products. Uh, which are lower priced, so that may be a good thing in that consumers are probably looking to save money here. But on the flip side, if consumers are really looking to save money over the next three, six, nine months, 
they'd probably just cancel their subscription services, which they are currently paying for. You know, maybe you figure I can live without all of these and I can live on TikTok or YouTube or maybe I can live off one or two of them, you know, and, and then I can just use my Tubi or my, my, my free streaming service. So I don't think the current setup is a healthy one for streaming services in the near term. If you trust Reed Hastings, he says, well, in the long term, this general shift from linear TV to streaming is an inevitability. So, of course, streaming subscribers are going to grow in the long term. And Netflix made a big statement to say, look, we are going to have reaccelerated growth in the second half of this year. This second quarter 2 million loss estimate is a blip. Uh, like, you know, trust us. So... I would have to imagine there will be some resetting of the narrative that like it's not like we've hit a total ceiling on streaming growth, but even if we're still going to get to 500 million, 600 million, whatever the number is, streaming global subscribers at some point, maybe it will just take a lot longer to get there. Maybe that's where I end up. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a big deal. Like you said, they haven't lost subscribers in a decade. The last time they did that was when they shot themselves in the foot with a quickster. And beyond just the numbers pulling back, you can see you can see how seriously Netflix is taking this because they've basically thrown out their entire playbook. All these things they said they were never going to do, they're now trying to do because they're trying to find more subs, trying to keep them. And the most important one, I think, is the fact that they're going to have an ad based uh tier a, a lower a lower price tier with ads they uh, insisted they wouldn't do this now they're doing it what they've been telling wall street is hey we're gonna add ads into our service we're gonna we're gonna have a layer that has ads but we're not really gonna build our own advertising business we're gonna basically find other people to do that there's speculation about who they'll be working with the most recent uh headline i saw was a suggestion they may, might work with roku who they have a long-term uh, relationship with. Roku started off as a Netflix sort of skunk, skunkworks project. What do you think of their prospects for for turning that ad business sort of on overnight without having to go and build it themselves? I mean, look, this is a business that they have not historically been in. And in fact, Reed Hastings has gotten on a soapbox many times over the years to explain why he's always stayed away from advertising. Basically, his argument is, I mean, beyond the technical side of it, what he has said is like there's basically a set pie for advertising. And if we were to just jump into the ring, it's not like we would create billions of dollars more in ad revenue. We just fight for the existing ad revenue. And that's not a world we want to get in. So they've changed their tune on the rationale behind this basically by saying, you know, well, there's evidence that consumers really want this and. HBO Max has an ad tier and Peacock has an ad tier and Paramount Plus has an ad tier. And of course, Hulu has always had an ad tier. So we'll go into this. Now, I, I, that doesn't really make any sense to me. Like the, the obvious reason why they would suddenly be going into advertising is that their growth stopped. So this is a new way that they can rejigger revenue growth, both through possibly getting more subscribers from a lower priced product and also for all of the additional revenue that they will certainly get from advertising. So like, will it work? Like, yeah, it'll work like all the other streaming ad supported services work. And like, they do work. Like their average revenue per user is higher. I mean, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts came out and said that the blended ARPU product, meaning Peacock, which is some people get Peacock for free. Some people get Peacock for $4.99 per month plus 
advertising. If you put those two products together, the average revenue per user when you're counting the ad revenue is over $10 per subscriber. $10 is more than $4.99 and is more than zero. Yeah, I mean, and then Peacock is an underwhelming product in, in lots of ways. But to NBC's credit, they always said this is going to be a, a way for us to sell ads and to and to keep more ad revenue than we would get if we you know handed this over to YouTube or something else. So we're and we're in the ad selling business, so we're now we're just gonna instead of just selling linear TV ads, we're gonna sell it on streaming as well. All of the other big media companies have existing big ad businesses. Netflix doesn't, and and so I just want to repeat this question. They're saying, look, we can just plug and play. We can just get someone else to go do all this stuff, uh, and we don't really need to worry about building up the infrastructure and building up the sales team you need to go out and do this. Do you think they'll be able to pull that off or are they eventually going to have to start spending money to build build their own stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it will depend on sort of the take rate and the success of the product. I mean, it is not Netflix's MO at all to be long-term relying on others. Like if, 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 if their initial product, of course, was licensing a bunch of content from others. And then they got into original content, and now the bulk of their product is almost all original content. So it wouldn't be that much of a stretch to think, like, maybe they're using sort of the same playbook here, where it's like, okay, we'll sort of foster this out on others. And then over time, as we kind of figure out how this works, we'll take it over and we'll do it ourselves. So that would be my gut reaction to the answer to the question. And then, uh, uh, curious, uh, there was also a headline out there that said, um, people at Roku think Netflix is going to buy them. That one seems like much more of a stretch to me. Um, do you, how do you how do you feel about Netflix going and simply just buying its way out of this problem? I'm not even sure that it's worth talking about it, Peter. Like I, I don't think it's true. I did a very little research about it, but was totally waved off on it. Like I, I think I don't... I don't know if you and I talked to the same people or if we talked to different people, but I, I got the same take. We'll be right back with Alex Sherman. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. Let me move over to Disney, which, as you said, was up until relatively recently considered sort of the the second best version of Netflix. And it was getting praised in the Bob Iger years for, for doing this massive pivot and turning itself into Netflix. Now Bob Iger is gone. Bob Chapek is running the company. Um, tons of unpleasant headlines coming out of there. And the thing that, you know, investors care about is that their stock price sucks. But the most recent headline is about someone named Peter Rice, who I think if you are not in the industry, um, you have never heard of. Who is Peter Rice and, and why should we be thinking about him? So Peter Rice uh, has run uh, Disney's uh, TV content business. He's basically the person that decides what stuff gets put on Disney Plus and Disney's linear cable TV channels and he's he's like the content guy he's the, he's the person that is talking with hollywood and choosing the programming in essence he came over from fox came over from fox correctly as part of that acquisition if you remember a couple of years ago where disney bought the majority of the fox 
assets. It was like a $71 billion acquisition, though. Some of that didn't actually end up at Disney through other divestitures and so forth. But yes, he was part of that. He's, you know, one of the more powerful people in entertainment, given his role. And he was suddenly, unexpectedly fired a couple weeks ago. And, you know, I think there was sort of a gut reaction of, did Disney CEO Bob Chapek do this because he felt like Peter Rice was a threat to either take over the CEO job or maybe he was sort of uh, campaigning internally and and is is that sort of the motivation here or was there something you know behind the scenes that that we don't know about because his contract was just renewed last August so this idea that he would suddenly be fired unexpectedly seemed uh, illogical and he's been replaced by Dana Walden uh another longtime powerful executive also came from Fox um and maybe none of this will matter uh in long term but the way that that our um the way it's being treated in the press and in the industry gossip is this is some a major seismic change and and the suggestions all sort of suggest this is the suggestions all suggest the suggestion is that this fundamentally is is another misstep or sign of 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 Bob Chapek not being long for this job. Um, Peter Rice made it clear that he was fired, um, which is something they don't normally do uh, in Hollywood or most other industries. Um, and on the same day that Peter Rice said, I've been fired, um, Disney said, by the way, we totally support Bob Chapek, the, his board did. Um, so it was specifically meant to sort of tamp down that that speculation. But as lots of folks have pointed out, um, they have not renewed Bob Chapek's contract, which uh, is up at the beginning of next year. Do you think that one that this that Peter Rice being pushed out is is meaningful long term for Disney, and then the more important question is: Do you think Bob Chapek is going to run Disney uh, a year from now? Yeah, both good questions. Um, I'll take the first one. From my understanding of what happened in that Peter Rice meeting, it was very quick. Peter Rice was told by Bob Chapek that he was not a culture fit. I'm told that basically Rice kind of asked, you know, can you give me some examples of what you're talking about? And Chapek refused, which is that part of it to me is totally bizarre, right? You're, you're firing this person who's really high up in the Disney org chart, and you're not even uh, explaining to him why you're firing him. I mean, I would think anyone at any level of any company should be uh, given an explanation about why they're being fired beyond we don't see you as a culture fit. I mean, you'd think that that person would have had reviews and meetings and this stuff would be well documented. Like, I mean, I before I was a journalist, I was a supervisor at, at, at a industrial supplies company. And we were given management training about how if you're going to fire someone, you need to have like a, a trail of written documentation about why that person is firing. And then you, you give that person sort of a warning and you say your job is on the line. And then if they still don't improve, like then you fire them. Now that was just sort of the company standard, but that also is sort of a human being standard. No, uh, that you would do that. So I think a lot of the outrage around this is is the confusion around why it happened. The the news I can share with you is that I'm told that Peter Rice 
has just a standard non-compete. In other words, he can join another company in just a few months. This is not like he has some sort of extended garden leave or, or, or part of his severance package here. So Rice very well may end up in, in, in a major role at some other media company here. Um, is it like a huge deal for Disney? Like, you know, I mean – probably not in terms of like, is the stock price going to move one way or the other? It seems to me that the bigger deal was the fact that instead of addressing Peter Rice's firing, the board addressed that by a statement about Bob Chapek, which is like, there's not like really a logic line A to B there. Like we're going to fire Peter Rice and we're going to release a statement saying we support Bob Chapek. Like one doesn't like logically have to do with the other. You have to make a logic leap there about, oh, people are going to see this firing of Peter Rice and assume that Bob Chapek has done this for X, Y, and Z reason, and we want to reassure people. So that in itself, to me, strikes me as odd, and that at least the Disney board kind of senses that other people feel like Bob Chapek is in a weak position. Now, is perception reality there? One thing I would note, and again, don't know which way this will run, but several people on the Disney board, just as Bob Chapek uh, uh, followed Bob Iger, Safra Katz, who's on the Disney board, followed Larry Ellison at, at, at Oracle, John Donahoe followed Phil Knight at Nike. He's on the Disney board. So perhaps they will be sympathetic to Bob Chapek in this particular situation where following Bob Iger is sort of a tough situation to begin with. Or maybe they'll look at their own situation and say, hey, we did it. Why can't this guy do it? I don't know. But Interesting thing to throw out. I think everyone is wondering whether or not Bob Chapek will keep his job. Beyond the Netflix thing that we already talked about, that has to be one of the biggest stories in media and entertainment. Clearly, who the CEO of Disney is is a big deal. And the fact that that Bob Chapek may not be renewed and only be the CEO for a couple of years is very un-Disney-like. But really, his whole tenure has sort of been un-Disney-like. So who knows? Okay, watch this pivot here or segue. We know who the CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery is. It is going to be for some time. That's David Zaslav. He now controls both Discovery, the company he's run for a long time, and now Warner, what used to be called Warner Media. They sort of had sort of a, a formal coming out party at the upfronts recently where they, uh, he was out there um, presenting to advertisers. There's been some um, shuffling of executives, which was mostly expected, I think. Anything else telling that has come out of Warner Brothers Discovery since that company's was formally merged a few months ago? They, in some ways, I guess, compared to Netflix and and Disney, they've been quite quiet. So the, the interesting thing about Warner Brothers Discovery, I think, is that even before the, the Netflix freefall in shares, David Zaslav was starting to talk about this idea of maybe we're not going to spend as much as you think you know in another in as many words on streaming in other words you know we 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 want to focus on the best programming but we don't necessarily want to win the spending wars i think that's sort of what he has said and i know some people i've talked to privately told me that the rationale behind this was that he took a look kind of under the hood at Warner Media when they bought it and did not like what he saw. Uh, and some of this was actually public. Um, that they came out in a conference call, I believe, where Discovery executives basically said, look, Warner Media was spending a lot of money on a lot of projects that didn't make any sense. And obviously CNN Plus was one of those, which they've originally, which they've already gotten rid of. But the hint was like, you're going to see some major cutting on stuff over the next few months as we try to rein in this company 
that was not doing a great job uh, of finance planning. So that has corresponded with this pullback in Netflix shares. Uh, what I'm told you can expect from like a consumer standpoint here is HBO Max is going to be their flagship streaming service. They may, by the way, change the name, I'm told, of HBO Max. That's still being tossed around. Once they combine all of the Discovery Plus programming with the HBO Max programming. So these two things will be put together. Now, the whole plan of HBO Max for years under AT&T, when WarnerMedia owned AT&T, was we will take HBO and we will throw a bunch of other stuff that isn't HBO, and that's the Max part. What I'm told is that the new plan is Discovery's programming will essentially act as the Max. So where you can expect a major slowdown in spending is what AT&T called the max. In other words, the non-HBO original programming. That's where I think you will see David Zaslav and Casey Bloys really pull back uh, and not spend nearly as much as what the original plan of HBO Max was because they kind of feel like the discovery programming fills that niche to some degree. Uh, and also perhaps they felt like they just weren't having all that much success coming up with these great original shows that were not HBO branded. So instead of The Flight Attendant, you're going to get Dr. Pimple Popper, which I think is a show, a popular show on, on Discovery. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. By the way, you probably knew this, but do you know what, do you know what the Max in HBO Max came from? Do you know, do you know where that derived from? No, I don't it's think Cinemax. I... Cinemax. Ah, Cinemax. It was Cinemax, and the and the MAX was the logo. Yes. Now that you say that, I do remember that. Right. Nobody even remembers Cinemax. It's funny because that that actually was a big part of the Richard Plepler strategy that he argued uh, unconvincingly to John Stanky that the HBO and Cinemax should just be put together, and that's that. Like that should be the end of their streaming strategy. Like forget about all this other stuff. But the idea at the time was, well, we need to compete with Netflix. So we need to bring in all this other stuff, kids programming, you know, women programming, non-quality programming, for lack of a better word, you know, reality, like throw it all in there. And so that is kind of still the strategy, like the, that's what the discovery portion of this is going to do. But again, this idea of like, we need to compete with Netflix, like maybe that's not as big of a, a draw anymore internally now that Netflix is one, whatever, you know, has dropped 70% of its value. One last uh, industry question for you, or one last industry to talk about, which is the industry I'm in, digital media, publisher. I work at Fox Media. Um, we used to be in a cohort with BuzzFeed and Vice, um, and we were all going to take over the world. Um, and I'm sure Vox Media is still going to take over the world, but but it's it's uh, uh, may take a little longer than we thought. Meanwhile, both BuzzFeed and Vice seem like... <laughs> The question, there's a real question about whether they are going to survive in their current form at all. BuzzFeed's uh, shares are, are just in the tank. Um, the market does not want any part of them. It's a disastrous uh, IPO slash de-spacking. And we've been hearing for months and months and months, in part because of reporting from you, that, that Vice Media is very much on the table, either as, as a whole company or in parts. Where is that maybe for sale process at right now? So it's it's in the works, certainly. They have kicked around this idea of selling just the content studio if they can't find a buyer for the whole. I was told uh, three or four weeks ago that there were buyers hovering around the whole thing. But you never know. I mean, that sometimes can be 
uh, over-exaggerated with the hope that there is a buyer and sometimes there is not. Yes, and they tell you it's it's inbound, meaning people are asking for it instead of like we're going out and selling it. We're just responding to to you know the market interest. Yes, exactly. Uh, so I, I can't give you a real definitive answer on like something is going to happen there or not. I, I have not heard one way or the other. You're reminding me to ask again, uh, as it has been a few weeks since I've uh, really looked into that. BuzzFeed, I'm looking at the shares now, $1.70 per share. This was a SPAC that started out at $10. I remember I spoke with Bustle Digital Group CEO Brian Goldberg about BuzzFeed. He runs another digital media company. Uh, and he told me that if shares fell under $6 per share, he would back up the truck to buy as many shares as he could. So for his sake, unless there's a major turnaround, I hope he did not do that as shares are uh, much lower than $6 today. The fact that BuzzFeed has been such a disaster is a big story for digital media because the hope here was BuzzFeed would be able to convince the public market that there was a growth story there and BuzzFeed could use its currency to roll up several of the other privately held companies that have VC backers who have been looking for an exit for 10 plus years. That obviously cannot happen now uh, at current levels. So it again kind of th just like the Netflix sinking valuation kind of throws off the big media narrative. The BuzzFeed sinking valuation throws off the smaller media narrative. The Netflix one was a shock, right? Um, BuzzFeed not setting the world on a, a, a flame is not a shock. The fact that it's been a full fledged disaster is un is an unpleasant surprise, but but less shocking. Yes, not a shock. Uh, certainly among the people that run digital media companies, they were, they were hoping for something better than this. Let me put it this way to you though, Peter, while not a shock, I do think a little bit of a shock of how quickly it has fallen. I mean, if you had told me that Buzzfeed would be a dollar 70, like when did it IPO six months ago? I mean, it hasn't been long, like that is very bad. And some of that has to do with the macroeconomic situation. That, uh, again, if you are a digital media company that is mostly ad supported and you're now looking at an environment where you're expecting ad revenue to fall X percentage, which, you know, some people I've spoken to have told me it will be a two to six percent decline. Others have told me they're planning on a 30 percent decline. So that's not a good situation to be in if you're one of these companies. And, and we have seen this general shift away from advertising supported towards subscription and events and e-commerce so that all these digital media companies over the past few years haven't been so attached to ad revenue, which is clearly not a very good business. Nevertheless, there's still a whole handful of them that exist that are in this bucket. So what happens to them now? I mean, maybe I'll throw that on you. Honestly, Peter, you're better at answering that question than I am because you kind of live and breathe this and have been at one of these digital media companies for longer than I am. What do you expect? will happen to the handful of companies that kind of fit this general world now. Are, are we going to see bankruptcies? Are we going to see major layoffs? Look, I mean, by the way, the diversification stuff is is true. But to be clear, these are all advertising-based companies. Um, they are still powered by advertising. They have they have done, to varying degrees, um, decent jobs at, at diversifying 
Yeah. But, but, um, and I think, um, I do think that a lot of people in the media business, unless you're directly selling ads, have not fully thought through like what's going to be happening over the next six months to a year if we do enter some kind of recession because that ad, that, those ads go away. Jonah Peretti has always said he wants to roll up all the companies. Nancy Dubuque, who still runs Vice, wants to roll up all the companies. Um, Jim Bankoff, my boss, is is has been less vocal about wanting to merge everyone together, but he's done a lot of mergers. Um, I would imagine there's going to be more consolidation. These are, you know, these are these are businesses. They make stuff that people buy, either advertisers buy them or consumers buy them. Um, they can be run at a profit. They're just never. This is always my question about Buzzfeed as a public company. They're not going to be go-go growth companies. Um, so uh, an investor who wants that profile won't want to touch a BuzzFeed or a theoretical other company. And they don't throw off a ton of cash. They can be okay businesses, but they're not throwing off a ton of cash. So that that wipes out another class of investors who are interested in profitable, slower growth companies. So I just don't see how they work in a public market unless something radically changes. Yes, you're, you're, you're saying that uh, the pitch of we are a moderately good business that's not that has no major growth profile is is not a good sell to Wall Street. Uh yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate. And we don't pay a dividend by the way. So, yeah, and also we still compete with Google and Facebook. We don't even really compete with them. We just sort of pick up whatever scraps they don't pick up. Um not great. We compete with them and now we compete even more so with uh TikTok and Amazon and again, if you kind of believe like there's gray areas to the broader pie like Maybe even as a stretch, like we kind of compete with like Netflix and Disney as they're entering the ad world. I mean, that 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 money likely comes more from linear TV than digital media, but it's still all kind of the same bucket here. So uh, it yeah, the prospects I don't think are very good um, again for this industry. And I have friends that work in the industry and I hope for the best here. I hope for some sort of soft landing, but. I said the same thing five years ago that I hope for a soft landing. And maybe the best case scenario is kind of what we've seen with newspapers, where it's sort of a slow, inevitable decline. And the hope is that some other stuff gets invented along the way, you know, like the athletic or whatever, where there's a shifting of resources rather than just an ending of resources. Um, we should come back and talk about uh, The Athletic because that's a pretty interesting story and we're just seeing how that plays out and then we can spend weeks and weeks talking about TikTok, which is dramatically undercovered, but I hope to change that in the future as well. So um, let's let's end the discussion here on that deeply bummer of a note. I'll wish you a good weekend and we'll have another <laughs> conversation in, the, in some point in the nearest future. Thanks, Alex. Take care. Thanks, Peter. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Alex. Thanks again to Travis and Jelani, who produce and edit the show. Thanks to our sponsors who bring it to you for free. Thanks to you guys for listening and writing and tweeting. I love it. I'll see you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.